on this week's Devils in the Details. Not much is happening on a United transfers front, so we decided to look at some of the other teams in the Premier League and how they're shaping up going into next season. Then, we're going to take a look at a number of different topics related to uh, things that you were interested in hearing uh, in a Q&A that we ran on Thursday morning. Case, how's the week been? Week's been pretty good, Aaron. I cannot complain. Uh, would have liked a little bit more positive United news, but have to have patience. It's not even July yet. Uh, what about you? How's your week been? Yeah, on a United front, pretty much the same. Um, I've been doing exams all week, so I've been looking for some good United news to cheer me up. But um, now we're edging towards the end of exams and hopefully edging towards some transfer activity because... Talking about other teams' good business is going to be a little bit painful knowing that we're still waiting for United to do their business. Um, But that's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, A lot of the teams in the Premier League are doing really interesting business. A lot of the teams in the Premier League are looking pretty good going into next season. And we're going to go through the league and talk about some of these deals, um, which ones are our favorites, which ones we perhaps don't like as much, um, and what they mean for the teams that these players are joining. Starting with Arsenal... Uh, who are currently looking like they're going to be one of the biggest spenders of the window. They've already signed Kai Havertz for $65 million, and they've bidded and had reportedly being close to accepted for a £105 million bid for Declan Rice. That's $100 million plus five in add-ons. Um, and they're also linked with Yuri and Timber. Um, let's start with Havertz's case. Um, Arsenal already signed Gabriel Jesus last year. They also have Martin Odegaard playing number 10 for them. Both of them are two of, I would say, Arsenal's best players. Um, So how do you think Kai Havertz fits into that? Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I think the immediate instinct is to assume that he'll be the other advanced eight in that midfield. I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I don't think Havertz is a bad player. I think there's good technical and physical tools there, but I do think he's kind of a tweener in that he doesn't really fit at as a midfielder or as a center forward, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't understand this move. That's not to say that it can't have a, a positive impact for Arsenal, but... This is a player who is widely regarded as, as a disappointment uh, in this in the same league. Granted, he he did play you know in in tactical setups that that probably didn't make the most of him. But I'm not convinced that this Arsenal tactical setup will either. All of that said, I'm I'm not going to come out and and crucify this move. I don't think it's terrible. Uh, I do think it's a little odd. I think it's an odd use of this money. Yeah, no doubt to me that it seems like Chelsea have got more money than I ever would have envisioned them getting after the years that they've gotten out of him following a 73 million pound purchase. Like they've basically 
not gotten anywhere near what they paid for uh, in terms of the output Havertz registered at Leverkusen um, and sold him for close to the same value three years older, um, which to me is really odd. And I think Arteta's quotes for the signing implied that he saw Havertz as like a versatile, can fill in in a number of positions player, um, which I also don't really think you want to pay 65 million pounds for. Um, But I've always been a relative fan of Havertz. At least I think he's better than most Premier League watchers probably think he is. Um, I think he has some decent movement around goal. I don't really think he has like natural number nine movement, but I think he does have some box arrivals and and reading of space that allows him to get off good shots. I also think he's a technically good player, like he's a good passer. Um, He's relatively good under pressure, but I would say like not one of the best forwards I've seen under pressure. Um, And I mean, he played number eight and number 10 earlier in his career. He's played more as a forward for Chelsea. So I can kind of see it, but I also think he's just such a different player to Granit Xhaka, um, even the role that Xhaka was playing last season. So Yeah, I mean, I think the reason people really liked Havertz when he was coming out of German football is, you know, he was an incredible athlete, athletic ball carrier, huge box threat relative to his position, which was as, you know, this free-roaming midfielder. Um, I think what got missed was he doesn't really contribute in build-up phases very much. Uh, he he really was a, a particularly extreme version of the Bundesliga players who feast on transition phases. He was one of the best transition players in that league, in a league that's geared towards transitions. I think that has continued to be true in the Premier League. Um, I don't think he's a particularly good passer, especially a creative passer. I think he's fine. I think he's functional. I think he has a a high enough technical level to get by. But I think a lot of people were expecting him to be a creator, and he has not been a creator. Um, He's definitely not like Martin Odegaard. Not even close. Um, I don't don't, don't think he's as good a passer as Shaka is. Um, Definitely not progressive. Like, one one thing you were saying that I agree with is that he's not a super build-up involved player um, for a midfielder, and Xhaka was extremely involved in build-up throughout his Arsenal career. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think we kind of have to wait on this one, and I'm reluctant to say it's not a good transfer because I think it's likely that you will see Havertz play quite well for Arsenal in the balance of things. I just feel like they might end up getting a squad player um, or like a relatively average starting 11 player who doesn't elevate them to the level they want to get here. And for that, I think they pay too much money. I think for me, I I sort of take a different angle on this. And I think once I say this, I think we should probably move on from Havertz because we we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, I just think these moves, this window needs to be major needle movers for Arsenal. They need to be getting players who are stars relative to the rest of their starting 11. And I'm not convinced Havertz will be that. That's not to say that they won't get good production out of him. I could see them getting, in particular, more goal assist output than they got from Chaka in that same role. Um, 
but I don't think he's an upgrade over Jesus at center forward, and I, I don't think he's going to blow this team open in 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 midfield. I don't think he's going to completely change the way they play. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And, I mean, I think it's... I it, To me, it seems like Arsenal are going for players here that that take that risk, or at least with the fees they're paying. Um, and similarly, $105 million for Declan Rice. But I think this one's kind of the opposite, where I think Havertz has a level of risk associated with it, whereas Declan Rice is kind of like a super safe midfielder who I think is good. Uh, but I don't really think he is an £105 million pound midfielder. Frankly, I think he's worth close to half that. And it's it's a weird one because people watch Rice and they say he's really good at what he does. And I agree. It's just that I don't really think what he does is worth a hundred million pounds. Um, he's primarily a defensive minded player, and he's an excellent defensive player. But he's all right to good or like above average in possession. Um, and all of the other top players who are moving for these fees are players who really move the needle for their teams in possession, and particularly getting the team to the other side of the pitch or getting the team to create at the other side of the pitch. And I don't really think Rice is that. I know people are talking about how he's in a low possession team at West Ham, but they also run everything through him. So I don't know what the effects of that actually translate to in a higher usage team. I think you're very likely to get a player here who's good for you and suits your system. But again, probably not anything that like changes the nature of this team moving away from Thomas Partey. Yeah, I'd go a step further. I I agree with everything you said there. I think clearly the objective here for Arteta is he recognized that this Arsenal side is just less athletic than City is uh, in general. And I think this is an attempt to address that. I think Havertz and Rice are clearly like upper... 90th percentile athletes in the Premier League um, with fine technical skills, um, good at some things, okay at others, uh, technically speaking. Um, But I don't think Rice is a huge upgrade over Partey. Uh, I think he's a worse passer, frankly. Um, I agree. I think he's probably a better ball carrier, but more in transition than in, in settled possession. Uh, he's probably, he doesn't carry through tight spaces. Like he carries into space. Um, I'm not sure he's, yeah, I don't, I think with Havertz and Rice as your two deepest midfielders, and we're making an assumption here, Havertz could very easily be deployed differently. Um, but if those are your two deepest midfielders in certain phases, I have questions about whether you're getting better at playing out of a press. Uh, I think you're probably getting worse, which if you look at the way, I mean, this is unfair because there are 38 matches in a league season and and, and it's, it's difficult to say that because Arsenal lost to City twice, that's why they didn't win the league. I think there's, there, there was more that went into that. Um, but if you watch those two City Arsenal matches, I, I don't think these, these signings make up the difference there. Um, because I think you're gaining a little in one place and losing a little in, in another. Okay. Two more things on Arsenal, and I, I want to move on. Um, firstly, 
we have some level of uncertainty around whether Havertz plays number eight and Xhaka is leaving. So do Arsenal therefore have to sign a third player in the midfield here? Um, and yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think they might. I could see it happening. They are also linked with Yuri and Timber. Um, so I guess this is your chance to speak about Timber. I feel like he doesn't have a... Again, it's one of those, like, he could be a center back. He could be a right back. But those are two of Arsenal's better positions. So maybe he's depth for both. Um, but I do think Timber's a good player. So Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't understand this one. I think Timber contrib- will contribute. Uh, he's one of... One of, if not the most press-resistant center back I've ever seen. Um, he is a center back. He's not a right back. Even though he has played minutes of right back, he's a much, much, much better center back. Um, I don't understand this move for Arsenal unless Tomoyasu's injury is way worse than it is or Saliba's contract situation is more complicated than we realize. Um, because they already have a player in Tomoyasu who's a center back and a right back and a player in white who's a center back and a right back. And a player in Saliba who predominantly plays right center back. I don't get why you get a player who is a right back and a right center back. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but that isn't to say that he isn't a decent player. So, uh, and and I, I I could see how he could fit into this team. I, I will say this: he's not a particularly good passer, um, and it doesn't like introducing Timber into the side with Rice and Havertz. It's just like across the board losing passing talent uh which i i think is a, a bad thing but again I, i've got no issue with any of these one any one of these players individually yeah yeah i, I the timber thing to me seems like a response to Rob Holding playing a lot of minutes last season for whatever reason. Right, but the only reason Holding played so much is because Tomiyasu and Saliba were hurt at the same time. Yeah. Was injured. Which you're saying is you think is quite unlikely. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I, no, I'm not saying that. I I don't know what the situation is, but it implies to me that perhaps it's more likely than we realize. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I think it's pretty normal to go for having eight players who can play in your back four like they've got Tierney Zinchenko Gabriel and Kiwi or um Saliba White Tomiyasu and then have one more but I it's one of those again where I think I have to see it to believe it yeah agreed all right we spent 15 minutes on Arsenal I think that's more than enough um <laughs> uh, Brentford I don't think either of us really know that much about Kevin Shad who played for them on loan last season um, but their goalkeeper situation is really interesting uh, because they've signed Mark Flecken, uh, who Case can presumably speak to. And that means they are looking to sell David Raya before his contract expires next season. So I guess keep an eye on the moves for David Raya. Now, I mean, he was obviously supposed to go to Spurs, but they've signed someone else. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on Flecken? Yeah, Flecken is a um, very good shot stopper. Uh, pretty much horrendous with his feet. Uh, one of one of the worst goalkeepers I've I've ever seen play for the Dutch national team in terms of what he can do with the ball at his feet. Uh, so maybe Brentford can 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 make the most of what his skill set is, but I, I he doesn't belong at a top club. I think Rye is a better goalkeeper. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that they can't replace Raya one for one. Like, I think he's. I think 
we were talking about this before. Raya's one of not many goalkeepers in the Premier League or in Europe who are both above average shot stoppers and above average ball players. Um, and so I think they were always going to have a tough time with that. But it's interesting to see where he goes. I mean, I wouldn't rule out him ending up at United. I don't think it's likely at this point, but it would be impossible. All right. Brighton. Do we want to talk, do we want to talk about James Milner and no. Dahoud? <laughs> okay. Chelsea and Kunku. Um, we are yet to find out if Chelsea are going to sell Mount to United, but they have already signed Christopher and Kunku, um, and they have sold Havertz. So I guess this could be considered a Havertz or a Mount replacement. Um, they obviously have Pochettino. I think it's relatively likely Poch looks to play a 4-2-3-1. Um, as such, I think it's relatively likely Nkunku is going to play behind the striker. Yeah. I think Nkunku is pretty good. It's tough to say with these with these Bundesliga guys. It's been a while since I've watched Nkunku in any volume. When I was watching him, he was playing more in midfield. As I understand it, he's moved into the forward line in the last few years. Um, yeah. I think he has the... the physical ability to to make it in the prem i think he has a technical talent as well i don't know if he's going to be like a real match-breaking talent or whether he's just going to be good enough uh because i just have not seen enough of him in recent years uh the last time i i watched him in any volume was 2019 20 or 2020 21 i think 2019 20 which is a long time yeah i haven't watched a ton of him um but that always is really the concern with the Bundesliga players. You don't have like a clear. Yeah, I th- I think, yeah, I think the advantage with him is that you maybe bet on his physical talents more than other Bundesliga players. Um, the other thing is he's an excellent set piece taker, uh, which is worth noting. Uh, one of the best in the, in 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 German football. So there's value there, especially since I think Chelsea, I think Mount is that was their set piece taker. Um, so yeah, I'm curious as to how they would work this if they keep Mount and sign Kai Sato because they obviously also have Enzo Fernandez. I, I don't think they're keeping Mount, I don't think that's like even something they're considering. I think they're just trying to play hardball here. Hopefully, I guess. Um, uh, Liverpool. Liverpool have confirmed one signing so far in Alexis McAllister. I think this is one we both had strong opinions about. Um, I think my strong opinions slowly got less strong as the rumored fees kept going down. Like there were, there was a time when this looked like it was going to happen for 61 million, which I thought was outrageous for McAllister, but they ended up getting him for 35, which I honestly think is like the lower end of fine for McAllister. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, 35 is good value for the player that he is. Uh, I think he's a good player. Uh, I don't think he's a great player. I don't think he will be transformative for this Liverpool team, other than that he's young and typically available, which both of those things are of value, obviously, to a, a midfield that's pretty old and, and suffers with, <laughs> struggles with availability. Um, but I think a lot of people were expecting huge splash transfers from Liverpool this summer. I think it was also obvious that that was not the the approach they were going to take to to fixing their midfield. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if Curtis Jones and McAllister are the, are the two eights that play the most minutes for Liverpool next season. And I don't think that's a bad thing for them. I think those are two good players. I mean, they've got Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, and now McAllister. And then they have Thiago for the more experienced side, who I still think is really good when he's at his best. Um, as for McAllister, I mean, I think a lot of people tend to ask why I don't think he's really, really good. Um, and I guess my answer is I don't think he does clearly anything at the highest level. Like, I think he's moderately press resistant. I think he's like a moderately good passer in short and long ranges. He can break lines. He doesn't break lines like Enzo Fernandez. He can carry the ball. He doesn't carry the ball like Frankie. Um, he can create shots, but he doesn't create like a number 10. He's just kind of one of those players who will fit in Liverpool's system, can play a couple of different roles to a relatively high degree of effectiveness. And for that reason, I feel like it's a good signing for Liverpool because I think part of the problem with their midfield last season was that they could not do what Klopp wanted them to do. And the press was breaking down for midfield, um, which led to adverse effects all over the pitch for their players. Um, and I think this is a signing that's going to both, it's going to secure the floor of this Liverpool midfield as long as McAllister is available. Um, and so even though I don't think he's an amazing player, I still think it's a good signing. Um, and he's also pretty young, so they're going to get like six, seven years out of him minimum. Um, so yeah, no complaints about this at this price. Um, I, here, here's an interesting one for you. Would you, for Liverpool, have gone for Mateo Kovacic instead? He joined Man City for $25 million and he's next on my list. Instead, no, because of age differences. Uh, I think you could make the argument he's a better player than McAllister, but uh, also had more inconsistency since he's been a top, considered a top player. Um, part of that's availability bias, but but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think this is a good move for Liverpool. I think they're off to a decent start. And for Man City? Yeah, I mean, I love the Kovacic move for, for City. Uh, I think City are getting a little old, a little long in the tooth in terms of, I think they should be doing a little bit of renewal in this in the in the center of the park soon um but i mean that said you you have some of the best players in the world still so is it urgent no and i think kovacic adds value i think he's a city quality player um yeah yeah i think they'll splash if bernardo silva ends up leaving but right now they've just lost gundogan so I think I think Kovacic replaces him. I mean, he's I think Gundogan's obviously the better player, but I think Kovacic replaces him to enough of an extent that City can just keep going. Um, yeah, I would have gone a little younger too. They sold Lavia and bought Phillips last summer, um, so their current midfield options are like Phillips, Rodri, Bernardo Silva, De Bruyne, and Kovacic and Foden. Kovacic. And Foden, if you're going to play him in midfield. But other than Foden, all of those guys are in the second half of their 20s. Uh, Grealish and Mares are also in the second half of their 20s, if not 30s. Um, so yeah, they will probably need to do a revamp at some point. Um, as for Kovacic, I mean, I feel like McAllister to Liverpool, Kovacic to City makes sense. Kovacic is kind of like the opposite, where like McAllister, if he's a jack-of-all-trades, Kovacic is like really, really good at 
ball carrying and carrying out of pressure. Um, this is the thing we've been talking about United needing. Um, and we had talked about Kovacic too, joining United. Um, and so, yeah, I think both teams got the right player. I think they're both good deals. Um, yeah, anything else there? Nothing to add for me. I think that's that's that on those two. All right. I have a really interesting one here. Newcastle signing Sandro Tonali. This isn't confirmed yet, but it's 55 million pounds as the reported fee. Um, and I personally do not think Tonali is a 55 million pound player. I agree. I think he's more like a 30 million pound player. I, I, I don't think he's particularly good. Uh, I think this is a bit of highway robbery, to be honest with you. I think I think his his profile amongst casual football viewers is is far uh, higher than his actual talent level at at present. And that isn't to say that he doesn't add any value. I just don't think this fee is warranted. Yeah, yeah. I it's another one of those where I mean I actually think McAllister is the better player. But it's one of those where I don't really think he's actually doing that much at a super high level. He does a lot of different things, so people kind of think he can do everything. But again, I don't think the actual level at which he's executing these actions is like a Champions League level player, which is the competition Newcastle are going to be playing in next season. Um, And I think for that reason, it's relatively likely that for a club as ambitious as Newcastle, they're going to end up wanting to replace him as the starter at some point or maybe they won't because i mean if you think he's really good now you will probably think he is really good for newcastle i don't think there are things that are going to cause him to perform worse for newcastle than he did for milan um i agree but... i think he's a pretty physically robust player so like the, the the floor is pretty high i think he'll offer what he did in italian football and english football uh yeah but i just don't think what that 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 stuff that he offers is of of, of great value. So yeah, and so I think Newcastle might be in a position where if they get as good as I think they're going to get in the next few years, I think he might be one of the worst players in their starting eleven, um, which is never something that you want for fifty five million pounds. But you can get away with it hey, if you're I mean, gonna just spend that money every summer. So yeah, if you have unlimited money, it doesn't really matter. I just think they might eventually look to replace him. Um. Okay, Spurs. Spurs have made four signings so far. Um, I'll start with my favorite of the four, which is Dejan Kulusevski, who's been on loan there for a while, but he has just joined them for twenty-five million pounds, which I think is absurd. Yeah, I mean, obviously had a really rough season, but uh, the talent's obvious. He's produced in the Premier League. Uh, twenty-five million pounds is good value for the player that he is. How much of the drop off do you think is due to Spurs not being that great? Probably a lot, right? Like to me it seemed like a lot when I in the Spurs matches I've watched. Like maybe half of it. He also had massive regression on on his expected numbers. Uh he was like riding really really hot when he first came in. Uh and that just kind of fell off, but then yeah. Uh definitely some of it's attributable to the fact that Spurs were a mess this season. No doubt about that. Yeah, anyway, I mean, I think I still think 25 million for him is absurd. Like he's in his early 20s. I think he's one of the best left-footed right-wingers in football. Yep. Um 
yeah, this is awesome. I honestly would have loved him at United. Um, James Madison for $40 million. That's their most expensive signing of the four. Um, I think this is a good signing, personally. Like He's been consistently one of the more productive players in the Premier League. I don't think he's one of the best like three attacking midfielders in the Premier League, but I think he's in the next bracket below those guys. Um, the only thing here that... I don't really like is that he's actually turning 27 this year. And I think Spurs need to be building long-term, but for the player and for the price, I think they've done fine here. Yeah, I think it's fine. I, I don't think it's the most ambitious move they could have made, but it, I think it's fine. I, I think it'll add value. What do you think would have been like a more ambitious move than getting someone like Madison? Um, a more ambitious move... Uh, somebody younger, <laughs> like even somebody of, of yeah, less. I think with Madison, you kind of know you're of getting. less pedigree. Yeah, I mean Madison clearly produces at the Premier League level, and somebody younger, you'd be taking more of a risk. But genuinely, like I guess you just have to decide if you're Spurs, like what is your objective? Uh, well, like what do you want to be as a team? Because if you want to, I think even if you want to be a top four side consistently, you need to be taking risk in the transfer market and trying to get top end talent, especially since your top end talent son had a really down year and he's at an age where that could be a trend and not just an aberration. Kane is probably not going to be around much longer. Um, those are your two star players. Uh, and I think there's a big drop off in quality across the rest of the squad from those two players. Um, even though I, there are other players I like, it's just that like those are the two players who have been elite at Premier League level, and you need those players again if you want to be making top four in the near future. Um, and I don't think Madison is in that bracket. Yeah, I somewhat agree. I mean, I think Kulisevsky can get into that bracket, and I also think Richarlison is a really good player that we didn't get to see much of last season. Um, and so I think they have room to grow. And I think an attack with something like Kulisevsky, Madison, Richarlison, or, or two of Richarlison's son and Kane looks pretty threatening to me. But I don't know. Or at least it looks like it could be really good under the right coach. Yeah, I like Richarlison. I, I, but like... He's not Son or Kane, I don't think. Um, that's true. Yeah, that's fair. Like, I just think there's massive value in elite attacking players. Uh, much like an elite attacking player, the difference between an elite attacking player and a, a good attacking player is massive. Uh, it's far, far larger than the difference between a good uh, midfielder and an average midfielder uh, in terms of the value added. Uh, and I, I just think, yeah, that's something that you have to keep in mind. Pedro Porro. I haven't seen that much of him. Only what I've seen this season. Yeah, my main thing here is it seems more like he's a wing back, and they've just hired Postacoglu, who plays a 4-3-3. So I'm interested to see how that works out. But he looked pretty good from what I saw in the second half of Spurs' season, in spite of the like obvious team struggles. I think he has what it takes to make it in the Premier League, but I can't say a ton more than that. So Agreed. Awesome. Okay. 
Hope you enjoyed that update, I guess. Um, we'll be back after a quick break with some Q&A. Uh, more about United and maybe some issues around the squad. Okay, welcome back. We're going to look at some United-related questions. Um, starting with the first one here that I wrote down, but I couldn't find the name, so I'm sorry. Um, thank you for submitting the question. Uh, do you think Ten Hag will be tempted to replicate Pep's three at the back shape? Who would be most suited to playing, in quotes, the John Stones role? Um, I don't think it's particularly likely. I think what you're seeing is that the back three shape that Pep has instilled with John Stones in midfield is kind of a response to city squad dynamics. They have attackers who are really good at specifically attacking. They have defenders who are mainly center backs and they've lost fullbacks, which makes their defenders a lot suited to a shape where they are relied upon for rest defense. And then the more um, accomplished players in the final third can spend more time in the final third and I don't think that necessarily applies to United squad. I think you have players like Lou Shaw, for example, um, who are defenders who have a lot to offer in the attacking half. And so I don't think this is something that you're likely to see at United. What do you think? Yeah, I agree in general. I think I think this is something that we're prone to uh, watching Pep, Pep's sides, because Pep is such an excellent a, problem solver, and B, his sides are so dominant that it's easy to think, oh, normatively, this is the way that Pep's side is playing is the best way to play right now. When I think in reality, he's just the best at something that all managers do, which is problem solving. Your own squad dynamics and, and you know, uh, fitting your style of play to, to the sides that you're going to confront, right? Um this is what works for them. I don't think you mimic just because it works for them. It, it might. I mean, maybe. Like, it, that's that's going to be up to, you know, the, the the people making the tactical decisions at United. But I don't think I don't think they're going to go about this and be like, oh, they City won the league playing like this. We're going to try to play like this. So I, I, yeah, that's my take on it. There's also the thing of like, if you do something different to City, and your squad is still worse than City's, which is the likely outcome of all of this. Um, you're more likely to beat City doing something different to them than you are to do the exact same thing with worse players. Um, even if, in general, you might be slightly better with one outcome than the other, I think it doesn't make sense to be exactly like City um, in every single way because City is their own entity and they have the best players and they do something that is, like you said, unique to them. So. Yeah, we, we could go way further into this, but I think let's we'll leave it at that. All right. The second question comes from Jill. Correct me if I pronounce that wrong. Um, they asked, does selling Sancho for $45 million make sense for both the player and the club? No. Why? He's worth more than $45 million to this team being available as an option. 
than he is as forty five million uh, in transfer budget. Yeah, better a better better a bird in hand. Yeah, I mean, I think the average forward you buy for forty five million will contribute less than Sancho. I agree, um, or at least the average twenty four year old forward. Um, and I also think Sancho is likely to still get a little bit better. And so you're selling him at a time when his value is below what you could sell him for. So there's just a lot of reasons to keep Sancho, even though I know he's not playing at his best. I know there isn't a clear spot for him in the starting 11. It still just makes sense to keep him. Um, I mean, United are also playing Champions League next season. If you sell him, you're right. There's no clear spot for him in the starting 11. But if you sell him, then you have to replace him. And you're going to replace him with somebody worse. Uh, or you might not even replace him at all because we haven't signed anyone and it's almost July. So I, I just think it's a, a bad idea to be selling players who are going to contribute next season. Yeah. Great. Um, the pressing structure. This question comes from Joe. Um, how would the pressing structure change if we get the right players for Ten Hag? If you're still expecting it to be quite similar to this season, is that worrisome? Um, to some extent. I mean, I think United got to a point this season where their press was pretty good. Um, and we've talked about some of the limitations of that that prevented it from being really good and consistent throughout matches. Um, if you want to press throughout matches, you need a couple of things. One, there needs to be a clear realized trade-off of the higher rest defensive risk you're taking. Um, or I guess it's not rest defensive because you don't have the ball but the higher defensive risk that you're taking um, by committing more players forward. If they get bypassed, you can concede more chances. Um, and so you need to get to a point where Ten Hag is perhaps bullish enough about the players um, and the their ability to create from the increased ball wins from those pressures in order to commit more in the press. Um, the other thing you need is players who can press for 90 minutes. Um, and I think players like Onana, Mason Mount, and a clear striker who is above average at this division level, because United haven't had that under Ten Hag, um, I think all three of those things do move United closer to that. Um, and at, there are exceptions. Like, you could end up with a striker who's bad at pressing. Um, you could end up with you know, a midfielder who's bad at pressing or Mount could get injured, or you could be comparing the trade-off of having Mount versus Fred instead of trading off Mount versus Erickson, which is a clear upgrade. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of variables at play, but ultimately I do expect United to try and press more and more consistently, and in particular press more with fullbacks than they have this season, next season. Yeah, I don't think that United's press will train will change drastically in terms of its structure, especially early on next season. But I do think if you introduce more athletic players, specifically in central midfield at uh, center forward in those two positions, you will be able to you will have fewer failures in spaces where you're expected to be strong. Uh, which is to say that United's press will break down more. Uh, in, in the spaces where there are designed weaknesses, uh, you won't have opposition playing through midfield easily. You won't have them playing uh, short passes through the first line easily. You'll force them in, into making the passes that you want them to make. I still think there are structural holes in the way United are pressing. That means it won't be a perfect press even then. But 
that's the difference I'm expecting. I'm not so much expecting the press to change in terms of shape. I'm expect, expecting the uh, an increased execution level, allowing them, allowing the the issues with shape to be tweaked uh, more subtly. Yeah, I think you answered that better than I did. All right, this question comes from Craig Bright. He says, "Love the pod. Would really like to hear your guys' pointers for how to watch football more analytically." What are you looking at? What are you trying to see? Things like that. I feel like I'm often still just watching where the football is. Thanks. Okay, so you can't... For right, A, Aaron and I typically are also just watching the football the first time we watch a match. Um, it's hard not to. And we're also fans. So that's why we often rewatch matches. A. B. It is almost impossible to analytically watch every aspect of a match. People who, this is why when you see people on Twitter or in other spaces saying like, oh, I caught this player when I went to go watch this other player who plays on the same team and he impressed me. It's I'm usually skeptical of those people because it is very hard to go and watch one specific player and get a good appraisal of them while simultaneously appraising another player on the, even on the same team. Uh, if if you're gonna watch a player, you gotta watch the player, and and kind of follow them around the pitch. And you're gonna miss other players as a result. If you want to watch for tactical stuff, you gotta decide what tactical stuff you're looking for. Um, sometimes Aaron and I will watch a match back and we'll focus on the pressing. Um, and so what that will mean is, during the watch back, we will literally fast forward through possession phases for United and just go until United lose the ball. And then we're focusing on specific things like, okay, this trigger has happened. The ball is with this player with the, on the opposition side. How are United reacting? Um, and then it's just doing that over and over again. So it, if your question is, how do I watch? How When I turn the match on on Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday, um, hopefully not Thursday, how do I make my, my one watch each week more analytical? That is a difficult question to answer, but I would say the easiest and most fun way to start, in my opinion, is to start paying attention to how forwards behave off the ball. Um, because once you do that, once when the like let's say United get the ball into the final third, take your eyes off the ball and start looking at how players are moving in the box, um, because you will learn so much from that. Um, and then I think you're, it'll pique your interest and you'll kind of get interested in the, in the other parts of the game as a result. Um, that's, that's my recommendation. Uh, I'm still kind of, I have a personal obsession with forward movement, uh, relative to all the other aspects of the game. Um, yeah, I really love watching it too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that's just what I would do because that's how it happened to me. So Aaron, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, in general, I agree. It's it's quite difficult on first watch of your own team of a match that is live to be able to process everything that is happening. So if I'm watching something to analyze, I'm not. It's not the Saturday morning when I sit in front of my TV and watch all the Premier League games. It's usually after the fact when I can sit, watch, and pause scenes, think about what happened. Sometimes I'll send them to someone else and ask them like what they thought of the clip. Um, 
But if you want to have more, I think, analytically informed opinions on first watch of your own team, I think the first response is to try and separate how you emotionally feel about what is going on versus um, what actually happened when you watched it, which is very difficult. And I think it's something that nobody is perfect at. Um, but I, I think we can all be better at it if we're conscious of it. Um I think your points on watching back matches and looking for things were good. The one thing I would add is it's kind of hard to just go like, I'm going to watch a match and look at this thing. I think you'll find things, but I think an even better way to do it is to um, read what other people have to say about something, Um, consume content that talks about how the game is played, consume content that looks at actual matches and applies that theory to matches. And I mean, I think part of the process is that a lot of the things you read will be wrong. Um, I don't think there's like, this is something case and I discuss often. I don't think there are a ton of people on public in the public football content sphere who are making content that is constantly as informed as it probably should be. Um, even, even in today's episode, like, I think we are less informed on these other players joining these other clubs than we are when we do our weekly pod about United. And that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, and so what I would do is, I mean, you're, you're going to struggle at first to be able to discern whose content you believe is the most accurate and whose isn't. Um, and we could probably give some recommendations, but, um, in general, I think the fact that you read content and then watch games and looked for the things that these people said is something that's going to improve your ability to kind of see things that are going on. And that's definitely how I've learned everything. Like, um, I can't speak, I can't speak for case, but I started with zero knowledge of this game. Like I didn't play at a highly competitive level. Um, I didn't, and even playing at even like relatively high competitive levels, it doesn't even remotely mimic what some of these teams do at the top level of the professional game. Um, so I don't even think that's a prerequisite, but I mostly just read what people had to say analyzed data um, looked at what the data said challenged it um, looked at how the data is defined and whether that process is good i mean it helps that i'm a stats major and then gauged all that stuff against what i was seeing when i was watching games and the more attention and time you put into watching games the better yeah i agree with everything you said there um uh, the only thing i would add on top of it is we also get things wrong uh, so while I obviously have totally. faith in, in our content, uh, otherwise I wouldn't be making it, uh, don't just take what we say and then go watch a match and be like, oh, I see all the things they're saying. That's what's happening. Uh, I would much rather you go listen to what we say um, and then go watch a match and then come back in our replies and be like, hey, what do you think about this? I saw this. I don't, uh, you guys, I don't think you've mentioned it. Do you think this is happening? Because that gives Aaron and I, A, something to talk about, even if we disagree with you. And B, I, we love that stuff. Like, that's what we go back and watch these matches for. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, you can be wrong, but you can't ask bad questions. And I think that's a, a, a good way to look at getting into it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'll say this, right? I think being right is very important. Um, I think you like, like, I think a lot of people will say like, it's not important if you're right. It's more important that you understand how things work than your interpretation. And I don't really agree. Like, I think the people who have 
good ideas of how this game is won are the people whose ideas are most often correct. Um, And the people who have ideas of what signings are good and what teams are good are most often the ones who can look at traits and say, this is what makes them good, and they are right. Um, However, um, I think when you're learning the game, it's less important... It's important to be right when you have opinions, but it's not that important to have an opinion. Um, if you're not asked to have one or need to have one for some level of content that you're producing. Um, I think it's really undervalued when people say, I've watched XYZ and seen ABC, but I don't have enough information to say definitively that I think this is true. Um, one thing I've started trying to do is when I come up with an opinion, I also in my head have a level of confidence that I have in that opinion. And that reflects how likely I am to state or back that opinion. Um, and that way I can go, maybe I'm wrong on this, or this is something I feel really strongly about. And I think it's important to be able to differentiate between, you know, things you have the, you, you, you have the confidence to have an opinion on because opinions are important and it's important to be right um, but it's also important to know that you don't have to have one. Like you don't, you don't have to take a strong stance on things you don't feel confident about. Yeah, and I think that's important. This is again, we're we're getting pretty far away from your question, and and that's just a sign that it's a good question. Um, the other thing I would say to the other thing I would say is, I hope that we always have questions that we get asked on this podcast where Aaron and I say, I don't know, or I'm not comfortable answering that question, not because those are bad questions or because uh, I I like not knowing things, but because there's no amount of knowledge that you can accumulate um, with regard to this sport that will allow you to answer every question in an informed manner. And I I never want to be BSing on this podcast. Um, and I think the reason I say that in this context is when you go and try to watch a match analytically, um, know that there are a million things that go into it and you don't need to be an expert on every single one and have an opinion on every single one. It's okay to be like, I know these things and I don't know about these things and I'm not going to comment on them. And it doesn't mean that they don't matter. It just means that those are not my areas. Yeah, and that applies to the vast majority of people who work in the sport as well. They do one or two things very well, and that's what they do. Like, you could be an expert on set pieces. You could be an expert on data. You could be an expert on, like, I don't know, recruitment, scouting of, like, specific traits. Like, you don't have to – it's not like a be-all, end-all. I don't think anyone knows everything. Um, And we definitely know nowhere near as much as some of the professionals who work in the top level of the game. So – Yep. On that note, I think we're good. Um, I think we can call it there. It seems like we've uh, we've gone through quite a bit today. Okay, we can do that. No, no details. <laughs> um, do you have one? Uh, we got a few options, but none of them are riveting. Yeah, we can call it. All right. Thanks for streaming. Um, Alex just yeah, said thoughts now that we... Chelsea has accepted your offer from Mason Mount. Wait, what? question mark is he messing with us i, I don't Alec know i'm Collins. looking it up 
Wow, you gotta leave this in. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, wow, here we go. Sixty million package. Okay. Alright. Um, uh, wow, that just changed we gotta talk about this now. Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, this Fabrizio Romano edit that I'm looking at is so bad. <laughs> have you seen it? No. It's terrifying. They clearly they clearly weren't ready for this either. And Ornstein tweeted it first, so, you know. Wait, I'm waiting for Case to load up this uh this Mason Mount photoshopped graphic that I don't know if I don't know if we can slander Fabrizio's graphic design intern like this on the podcast, but I'm I'm just laughing. Breaking. Let's see. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. All right, Mason Mount. Okay, so we're an hour deep into the podcast. Shout- we have just heard. Who, shout out Alex. Shout out, Alex shout out Alex Callings for s- saving us on a, a whole reaction episode. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, follow Alex. Alex is great. We love him. Um, I hope we sign some of his favorite Leon talents so we get to have him on the podcast someday and also to make him sad. Um, okay. <laughs> um mason mount yeah we've talked about this a fair bit i think um 60 million is a little bit higher than we thought the valuation was last week we said that we wanted them to kind of hold at 55 honestly i think the difference between 55 and 60 is not that much um i think if mount had longer on his contract he'd be worth more um green flags of the signing i think mount's very good i think he's probably one of the 10 best midfielders in the premier league um he is 24 so he's young united need youth in midfield he is joining from a rival and he has been one of said rivals best players over the last couple years um seems like ten hog wants him which means that i mean he surely has reasons for that i think he combines a lot of the things that have made erickson a useful addition to united with the things that occasionally made us want fred to play ahead so I think he's kind of going to make United better than both having Erickson or Fred next to Casemiro would have made United. So all in all, I think there are a lot of things to be happy about here. Um, the downside for me is that United still need a press-resistant midfielder to carry the ball. That's pretty much the only one. Um, I think it's really important that United get that guy. Um, I'm really, really still hoping it's going to be Romeo Lavia. I think it's highly unlikely at this point that it's going to be Moises Caicedo. I think missing Caicedo is a big loss, but if United get Lavia, I won't be too upset about it. Someone had actually asked me if we could do it. Would you prefer to get just Caicedo or Mount plus Lavia on the podcast? Um, And I think I would choose Mount plus Lavia easily because I think United need a lot of midfielders. Easily. Well, Um, I think the question was actually Caicedo and and Rabio, wasn't it? Oh, there was another one that was Caicedo and Rabia, yeah. but I'd still pick Mount I agree. Lavia. No, easily. Yeah, I don't know. I'm quite excited about this on a personal level. Like, again, we try not to do the, like, how do you feel on this podcast, but I really like Mason Mount, and it's... Case said this about Onana last week. Like, it's fun seeing your club sign players you really like. I don't think that factors into all of the things I just said about why he's a good signing and why United still needs someone like Lavia. Those are all still true. But I am excited to see him play for United. Case, I'll let you go. Yeah, I mean, I think this is objectively a good move. Uh, Sixty million pounds is the is what he's worth. I don't think it's a high. I don't think it's a you know 
a steal, but I also don't think it's a bad valuation. I think it's probably exactly what he what his actual his true value is. Um, yeah, United needed an, an athletic midfielder who could play minutes over Erickson. Mount is that guy. Uh, he's twenty four, which is you know another player who you gets you in a place where you can recycle the squad. You're getting younger here. Excellent. Um, obviously, it's a problem that United still don't have a press-resistant midfielder that needs to be addressed this summer, that needs to happen. But now that Mount is done, you can move on to your next priority, which hopefully is Onana. Um, and then once you have those two done, it probably becomes sale-dependent. Um, but... It's a striker. That's a, you got to get a yeah, striker. you got to get a striker. But the, like, if you, this is huge. This is huge because it means the ball can start rolling. Um, and it's not even July yet, and you have a, a very good player in. Um, yeah, this is a reason to be excited. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about this. Fantastic. Um, if you're still listening, I mean, okay, no. If you listened to the first hour of this instead of just fast-forwarding to hear a reaction about Mount... Um, thank you for listening. If you just fast forwarded to hear our reaction about Mount, thank you for listening. And maybe you'd enjoy listening to the first hour. Um, I feel like we had fun today. So anything else you want to add case or maybe we call it a wrap? I think let's call it. I think that's a, that's a, that's an episode. Awesome. We'll see you guys next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details. You can follow us at Devil's ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.